brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support. Hello, I'm Adam Smith. I'm the Programme Director for Dementia Researcher at University College London. And it's my pleasure to be hosting today's YouTube and Twitter live stream. All this week, Dementia Researcher has been focusing on motor neuron disease. Whilst MND and dementia are two distinct conditions that can occur independently of each other, we know that many of our community of researchers work in the same space with connections to FDD, of course, and knowing that discoveries in one area of neurodegeneration can often create learning that help others. The 21st of June was MND Awareness Day, and it's a day when we honor and celebrate the remarkable MND community, showcasing their personal stories of courage and resilience and inspiring others to do the same by sharing uh, or daring. Uh, that extends to researchers too, because when it comes to research, this last week has been one of the biggest yet for exciting announcements in MND. And it's one of those announcements from MD Scotland and MD Association that has inspired today's live stream. It's my pleasure to welcome three amazing individuals who are going to talk today, helping you to learn more about MD, what it's like to live with the disease, and about one of the most innovative trials taking place to explore ways to beat it. And not just innovative in the MD space, but in the entire approach to how clinical trials are delivered. So let's, enough from me. Let's welcome our guests. We have the incredible Stevie Morris. Hi, Stevie. Hi there. Uh, the brilliant Dr. Jane uh, Halley. Haley. <laughs> and do you know what? There were two. There were two ways I could go with that. I, I'm going to go Halley's comment. Uh, Dr. Jane Halley from Haley. It's Haley. <laughs> it's Haley from from MND Scotland. Nice to meet you. And the uh, incredible Professor Savan Kapal from the University of Edinburgh. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi. Um, well, usually, of course, we get these things going with a start of introductions, a round of introductions, rather. So, uh, Jane, maybe would you like to go first and introduce yourself? Okay, so my name is Jane Haley, and uh, I'm a former um, neuroscience researcher, um, but now I'm the director of research at MND Scotland. Um, now, that's it, really. So that's that's me. What What does a director of research do? Okay, so we I basically oversee the uh, research strategy for the organisation and also the portfolio of funding that we have to invest in projects like the MND Smart Clinical Trial. So, so you're the friend, the person that all the researchers need to become friends with. Uh, <laughs> yeah, apparently. Savanka, <laughs> so would you like to go next? Yes, so thank you. I'm Savanka Powell. I'm a neurologist at the Ewan Macdonald Centre at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm co-lead investigator of the MND Smart Trial. And it's great to be here to talk about what we've been doing for the trial. Brilliant. And, and I saw this, not this week, last week, uh, your, I don't know, your colleague, your boss got a bit of a promotion. Uh, does that mean that, that you're now going to be in charge of everything? <laughs> I think that's one of her, for, for my boss to answer. Yeah. Professor Chandran is now director of the Dementia Research Institute. It's great news. It is. It's exciting for dementia. Well, thank you very much, Samantha. And uh, Stevie, I left you last. I left you until last because I'm hoping that as well as introducing yourself, you could then maybe go on to tell us uh, more about motor neuron disease uh, and just tell us what it is. And we usually ask the researchers to answer that question, but I thought 
who better to actually answer it than you? Yeah. Thanks for that. Well, hello, everybody. Yeah, I'm Stevie Morris. I'm, unfortunately, I was one of the unlucky ones we got M&D. I have had that now for close on to three years. Um, M&D is a horrible thing. Um, it's something that you don't really want to have. Um, but what I think is happening now is it's um, much more recognised by people. Um, unfortunately, one in 350 people can contract M&D. Um, as I say, it's a horrible thing because there's nothing you can do about it at the moment. There isn't a cure. Uh, essentially, through time, you lose the ability to walk, to talk, um, to breathe and to eat. Um, and uh, eventually you pass. And generally speaking, the average is about 18 months. So I consider myself lucky to have lasted as long as I have. And, uh, it, I mean, it's it's difficult. I can't imagine what it must it must be like to to know what's kind of coming up. What what's been your experiences of of life living with M and D? I mean, how how have things changed? Yeah, I mean, I suppose the first thing is you have to be positive, and you have to you have to make sure that then you get the the bad feeling out of the way as quickly as you possibly can because life is for living. At the end of the day, um, so I, I stay positive. Um, football keeps me going. My, my sport at Hartlodian Football Club, the fact they sponsor MD Scotland, that, that helps a lot. But as far as how it's affected me, the first thing that happened was my right foot dropped um, and it was cold. Um, didn't know what was causing it. Several tests took place um, and then it, it got worse and worse. I went in for various tests, which take quite some time to get through them all. And then eventually I was diagnosed um with M and D, so what's happened is I used to have very good um, muscles in my legs. I had footballer's legs, um, but now my thighs have, have basically shrank to about half the size they were. My arms obviously are no longer as um, muscly either, so they've they've disappeared. This time last year, I could walk maybe fifty yards. Now I'm struggling to walk five. Um, Luckily, my voice is still okay. I can still talk. I can still swallow. I can still eat. Um, so again, I consider myself lucky in that respect. Um, I've got great support network. Um, the nurse that I've got, um, Jill Stott, is amazing. She she make it, makes sure she visits me and uh, keeps me up to date with what I need to do next. So for example, there, there came a time when I couldn't do stairs. So we had to get a stairlift um, installed in the house so I could get upstairs. And we we got ramps at the back the door so I can get in and out. And now I have a wheelchair that I use basically all the time. Um, getting dressed in the morning now, I need help and support from my, my wife who does a marvellous job looking after me. Um, but yeah, I'm lucky that I've got a lot of good people around me to help me. Just coming back a second to that initial diagnosis that you mentioned there, how how easy was it to get that diagnosis? I mean, were your symptoms coming and going, or was this? No, symptoms were there basically all the time. Uh, I went to play golf. It started when I was playing golf, and I felt a bit cold. And from that day onward, it was always cold in the one on one foot. Um, and then it's the leg, the foot started to drop, um, and then eventually it affects my hands as well. I don't know if you can see my hand. I've got a droop on my wedding finger. Um, so that's the kind of thing that 
Um, we spotted, and I, and I guess I don't know because M and I mean, as much as we've heard, how many people uh, get it? I, I guess that's not immediately where your mind goes to. Um, you well, might kind of start to think of, oh, well, this could be a stroke, or it could be something else. It could be a, but you know, uh, I've got some nerve problem. Yeah, a trap nerve is the most common thing that we saw at first. Um, and then, as I say, various tests then start to rule these things out. Um, and, you know, towards the towards the end of being able to d- the diagnosis to be confirmed, it was a muscle test that, that really proved that there was a real problem there because the brain messages were not reaching the muscles. Um, and it was, you know, then they said, you have MD. And, of course, it's a very traumatic thing to have to tell someone that they're going to die and they're going to die pretty soon and I actually felt sorry for the doctor that had to tell me that if she was lovely but you know it must have been hard for her as much as it was hard for me and my family to hear yeah I can imagine um Jane can I maybe come to, come to you um I mean I, I want to ask you if you could give us, obviously, Stevie's an amazing job at talking about his early experiences and then how it's affecting him and going on. Could you maybe talk a little bit to the neuroscience? But also, I'm interested in in the kind of diagnosis. Is this is this something that's simple to diagnose? If, if there are anybody who's watching who's maybe not sure if they go to the doctors or, or a guest struggling to get through kind of finding out a diagnosis, how, how challenging is this to diagnose and what's going on in the brain with this disease? Uh, well, I'll, I'll start with the last bit first. It is very challenging to diagnose and the pathway to diagnosis is often very protracted. It can be months and months. Um, Savinka actually would be much more of an expert at being able to talk about that because he actually you know, is the person that does does that. Um, so I might leave him to, to make some comment on that too. Um, he, he made a comment to me a few months ago that I think really stuck with me, which is that the ramifications of a diagnosis of motor neuron disease are huge um, for the patient and for everybody around them who loves and cares for them. And so it's important to get it right. And so they spend time making sure that alternatives where there may be treatments or there may be recovery are actually explored first before a diagnosis of motor neuron disease is given. And I think that that resonated you know, with me when he mentioned that because I can see that that's right. You don't want to give someone a diagnosis of MND if it's not, um, because it's uh, you know it really is important that you make that that correct. And that's one of that. So there's two reasons why it takes a long time. That 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 caution is one, um, but also there really isn't a definitive diagnostic test. And um, so there's a, a barrage of things have to be done to rule out lots of other things. And if we had a definitive test, then obviously that would speed up diagnosis. But we don't. And I think this has been a problem with a lot of neurodegenerative conditions and, you know, it's a problem that is slowly being addressed and solved. Um, but for MND, we, we don't yet. So so that's one that we do need to solve scientifically and and and, and make, a best, make it better for everyone. Um, but in terms of what's happening scientifically, well, you know, with any, with any neurodegenerative condition, you're losing neurons. Um, you know, with Parkinson's disease, you lose your dopaminergic neurons. With Alzheimer's, you know, you're losing cortical neurons, and that has an effect. So, with motor neuron disease, you know, as it says on the name, um, you're losing your motor neurons, and that could be your upper motor neurons or your lower motor neurons. It isn't a single disease, and I, 
I think that people often forget that. And there is a real um, case, I think, for saying that we shouldn't call it motor neuron disease. We should call it motor neuron diseases, like the dementias, because it isn't a single disease. And um, the symptoms can be very different in terms, uh, and the progression can be very different. And Stevie's already mentioned, um, you know, average life expectancy from diagnosis is about 18 months, but that is very variable. Um, we can say that about one third of people die within a year of diagnosis and about 50% die within two years. But there are people who do live a long time with motor neuron disease. And so the, 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 the type of progression that you get can be very different. The, the pattern of um, symptom um, uh, of symptoms that you get can be very different. So really, I think you should probably think of it as different a, a series of diseases um, that have commonalities. Um, and you know, within that, we actually have um, 10 percent of uh, motor neuron diseases actually familial based, so has a gene known genetic cause that can be handed down within families. But 90% isn't. And so we don't actually know what the triggers and causes are for, for that condition. Um, one thing that we do kind of know is that it isn't a single thing that will trigger uh, someone developing motor neuron disease. So there has a study been done which suggests that it's a six-stage process and six things need to happen in order for you to develop it. And one of those could be having that genetic predisposition through an inherited form. But then another bunch, uh, other things have to happen in order to, to, to trigger the um, start of the disease. So it's really complex from a scientific point of view, and I think that's why it's that's one of the reasons it's taken a long it's taking a long time to actually find one diagnostics and two um, treatments. Well, yeah, actually, you've you perfectly lined me up for my next question there, because I guess um, with this r multiple uh, different diseases that sit under motor disease. I guess that adds to the challenge of finding treatments, um, and also as well for the for the testing. What treatments and disease modifying therapies uh, exist for MND? Well, in the UK, um, we have one licensed uh, treatment for motor neuron disease, and that's called Rilizol. Um And it extends in clinical trials. It was shown to extend life by two to three months. So. If you think about having a prognosis of on average 18 months from diagnosis, then two to three months is really valuable for people because it allows them to spend more time with their, their families and their loved ones and their friends. Um, but it, And it also allows them to have a bit more time to plan as well. But obviously, it isn't very long at all. And so the goal is to have treatments that extend life much further. There is one thing that does extend life further, and that is actually ventilation. So um, because people with motor neuron disease eventually find it extremely difficult to breathe, some people um, go on to, um, well, initially external um, ventilation, but then some people go on to more mechanical ventilation. Of course, everyone would think of Stephen Hawking um, in that context because he was a very well-known person who had MND and, and he did indeed have mechanical ventilation. And that actually you know, is something that can prolong life a long time, but it isn't for everybody and not everybody chooses to do that. And not everybody probably could choose to do it either. Um, but basically, that's it. There is no actual disease-modifying treatment. And that is why it's so important that people actually research into motor neuron disease and look at how we can 
develop treatments, find new targets, develop treatments for those targets. And, you know, that is actually where um, MND SMART comes in. What a perfect, perfect line. <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to stop you because I'm going to go back one little bit uh, and just ask, does that mean, does that mean rather like, r- rather like in Alzheimer's disease that the treatments we're seeing through coming through are going to potentially stop disease progression, but not actually be a cure that actually the, the real solution here is to understand the original underlying cause of the disease and prevent it in the first place. Is this going to be the same for wheelchair? I think so. I mean, um, obviously, initially, the goal is to try and extend life. Um, so that would be slowing progression of, of the condition. And, you know, the absolute goal is obviously a cure. It would be to prevent progression completely and reverse any damage that's actually been done. But I think at the minute, realistically, um, slowing progression is is what we're aiming for, and then further down the line, once we've understood more about it, and we are able to do that, looking at how to reverse reverse the the damage that's been done. And of course, drug development. There's various ways to go about this, aren't there? You either you know you're looking at repurposing, which we know has been so successful in other areas where we use drugs for different reasons that were developed not necessarily for their original purpose. That make no sense. Um, or we bring new ones in. Um, Savanka. What is the MND SMART trial? Yes, the MND SMART trial, you've heard very powerfully from Stevie about the, the major unmet need for people living with motor neuron disease. You've heard from Jane that the only treatment we have was licensed over 25 years ago. And in that period of time, there have been over 125 trials, clinical trials for people with motor neuron disease, but none of them have led to a definitive new treatment in the UK. And so we've spent a lot of time considering the reasons for this um, and it's it's sort of things you've touched upon, really. The, the drug discovery may not have been appropriate. They might some of the studies have been underpowered, so there haven't been enough people in the studies followed up for long enough. The outcome measures have been burdensome, so that's led to quite a high rate of attrition, so people dropping out of trials. And also the inclusion criteria to many of the trials has been quite narrow, so the results haven't been generalizable to a larger population. And if you think about how trials have been run historically, most trials are two-arm studies. So you have an active drug followed up against a dummy drug, placebo, followed up for a period of time, maybe six months, maybe a year, and then you measure maybe functioning over that period of time and invariably have a negative result. And you know the time it takes to set up a study like that, get protocols, get the regulatory approvals, run the study, um, clean the data, report on the data, have a negative result, takes about four to five years. And so to test many, many drugs in this way in series is very inefficient. So MND Smart really is an innovative platform trial that we launched in February 2020, co-produced with people living with MND. And the idea here is to test multiple active drugs simultaneously against a placebo dummy arm. Everyone in the trial is on best standard of care, but what we can do here is efficiently test multiple treatments simultaneously. We can also look at the accumulating information that we're gathering from participants in the trial and make decisions at interim analysis points about whether the treatment continues or whether it stops. That's something called adaptation. And when new drugs are appropriate to be tested definitively, we can bring them in as well. And working alongside people with MND, we've made a number of uh, innovative changes to the protocol design. So firstly, it's a very inclusive trial. So the majority of people living with MND are eligible to take part. That's different to historical studies. We're delivering the medicines a liquid. So that means it can be given even in more difficult stages of the illness and also down feeding tubes. 
even before COVID, we brought in innovation of um, video conferencing-based follow-up. So we don't want to be taking up too much of people's time and also the physical difficulty coming backwards and forwards from the clinic. And we also courier the, the medicines to people's homes. So all of that has really been designed in conjunction with people living with the condition. And, and you mentioned repurposed drugs. Um, MND Smart is more than just the, the trial itself. It starts all the way from thinking about the most appropriate treatments to take through for definitive testing in this phase three platform. Um, you know, we've worked very closely alongside the MHRA and the scientific advisory panel to, to design a protocol that allows for that definitive result. So if a, if a, if a result comes through as showing a positive benefit in this study, we would really like to accelerate that through to becoming a licensed treatment um, quickly. One of the other things that we've innovated with MND Smart is actually just the number of sites that are open across the UK. So we launched in February 2020, just before the pandemic, um, and we learned a lot in the early stages during lockdowns of how we can deliver a trial during this difficult period through remote video consultations. And we very rapidly opened up across 20 sites in the UK, um, and we've recruited people all the way from the Isle of Orkney in the north to the Isle of Wight in the south, and we're open in all four UK nations. And only six of our trials, only six of our trial sites out of the 20 had ever participated in MND trials before. And, and one very strong ethos that we have as part of this controlled urgency is that people shouldn't have to travel past two or three different hospital sites to be able to get to a, a place where they can participate in the clinical trial. We felt very, very strongly about this. And, and we've learned a lot from colleagues, for example, in cancer medicine, where actually the standard of care is the ability to participate in a clinical trial. And actually, by delivering a trial in this way, we've changed the conversation for people. You've heard how tough the di diagnostic conversation is. But actually adding a new element of hope now to this conversation, that you can participate in the trial and be followed up, and that the learning from all of that will lead to improvements for people in the future. I've got so many questions. I'm going to limit myself, though, because I'm, I'm conscious that... So uh, just to come back to the start then, so is this a... Uh a perpetual trial? Is this something where once somebody participates, it's an ongoing process where they might actually try different drugs or is it always just one or is it a combination of different treatments? So that's exactly right. So the, the concept of this is that we have a platform where drugs are being tested um, throughout um, until we get a definitive result. And then we have interim analysis points. And if a drug is failing, according to predetermined measures of functioning, participants have, we can stop that treatment and introduce new treatments. And if a treatment stops, the participants who were on those treatment arms can wash out of that drug and then enter the study again on a new treatment arm. And this is really a, 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 a model that's been templated from cancer trials. There's a trial called Stampede, which um, has been running for about 15 years or more now, that's led to a change to the standard of care on four occasions. Um, and in COVID as well, these multi-arm trials really did show how the um, efficiency of this approach um, can really bear fruitful results. I mean that this really lends itself to kind of earlier stage where you rapidly start and rapidly stop, um, move on until you get something that looks like it's actually having an event and then you would make that into into those kind of bigger seating, those bigger kind of trials. Well, it's actually a seamless progression through. So actually you're right that that, that you can cycle through drugs that aren't going to work effectively and understand that definitively early. But the trial design allows us then to follow people up. So we can follow people up into 
stage two, stage three, and then more definitive analysis, which maybe, as Jane was saying before, looks at overall survival. So our interim analysis points look at how people are functioning on a clinical rating scale. And that's where we make decisions about stopping or continuing treatments. But the overall analysis looks at survival of individuals with people with this condition. And so we can follow people up. And, and indeed, many of the participants have been in the study now for three years. And so one of the um, problems of the previous trials have been that they haven't followed people up for long enough to gain the adequate insights of whether a drug is working or not. And as you say as well, one of the problems is that if you are just doing an early phase trial, you then have to set up the whole infrastructure again to do the definitive phase three to find out if that's going to work. And, and you know, that's a, uh, that's a resource in terms of time, it's resource in terms of people's lives, it's resource in terms of money. So those sort of things are much more efficiently delivered in a, in a platform trial like this. I have one more question before I'm going to go on to ask Jane some more details about the trial. But the last question that I have is how, so just coming, taking one step back, how do you decide uh, what's your process for deciding which drugs to take into the study in the first place? Yes, we have uh, an interdisciplinary grouping of experts, um, and we just had a screening meeting today, actually. So this is a group of individuals who are laboratory scientists working on stem cell models that are derived from people living with motor neuron disease. Um, and so you can derive motor neurons in a dish, and you can test those against uh, high throughput screens of, of many, many compounds pace to see if there are changes in those cells. For example, the abnormal protein that builds up inside the cells, TDP43, or the effects of the um, drugs on astrocyte function, supporting cells as well, glial cells. So you can look at all of these things uh, in a dish, but you can also do um, approaches that look at systematic unbiased literature reviews um, of preclinical models and clinical uh, conditions that have common pathways with um, motor neuron disease. We've also taken an approach of looking at network and pathway analysis, which is something that's done in the cancer field, looking at the protein targets that the drugs work on and the messages that might be affected that are common to motor neuron disease. And then, of course, you need an expert panel to look at these drugs, the long list that comes out and say, yeah, this is feasible for manufacturing. This is feasible in terms of safety. This is feasible in terms of a dosing schedule. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what really has led to feeding through the process of, of drug selection from MND Smart. That's brilliant. I, I know we've uh, we've had podcasts um, also available in your podcast app from Dementia Researcher, uh, where we've talked to some of the data scientists using platforms like Dementia's Platform UK to to look at uh, drugs and and combinations of those, and using data science and AI and machine learning to kind of come up with probable targets. Is that the kind of thing that happens that then before you take them into the lab? I mean, that's very much the way things are heading, um, that, that automated data pipeline approach and machine learning for, for scanning literature and also the, this high throughput automated stem cell screen is very much um, much more efficient than it used to be. But really the key answer is actually in the, the participation of people living with this condition and testing their yeah. drugs defensively in that platform. Yeah, of course, because that's the thing, isn't it? it? Those data scientists could probably give you 200, <laughs> 200 compounds next week and say, yeah, these are worth a look. Um, but if you haven't got the infrastructure there and this smart trial to deliver them, it's it's a little bit meaningless. So, um, Jane, uh, can I come back to you and say, I mean, obviously we've heard uh, Savanka's done a brilliant job. He might have already answered this question from your perspective. Yeah. But um, just, <laughs> I mean, give us a little bit of a, a reminder, so exactly how does smart trial differ from normal drug trials? Well, so I think, I think the, 
the main thing for us um, is that it speeds things up. Um, you know, it is the idea is you have one setup phase and then you have, you know, drug arms that you can add and remove and change. You don't have this constant setting up, running it for a short period of time, closing things down. It's hugely expensive and takes a lot of time. So Vanker, I think when he talks, he usually talks about how many decades it would take to test, you know, a small number of drugs. And, and yet this can be compressed. The time scale can be compressed when you're looking at a platform trial. And that's what they did in cancer. And that's the model, as he said, that they're using here. And so that's really important because people with MND don't have time. And, um, you know, and just to go with the time analogy a little further, it is time that there was a cure. And so, you know, it, it, we need to find ways of speeding things up. And this very much does that. And the other thing that I think is important, um, uh, well, actually, just sort of building slightly on that, it's about clinical trial infrastructure within the UK as well. You know, this is this is one trial that's many trials, if you like, because it's got multiple arms. And it's building up infrastructure right across the UK to allow people who have motor neuron disease to participate in a clinical trial. This is a real sea change, um, especially in Scotland. Um, uh, in the decade before MND Smart was set up, less than 10 people in Scotland were able to participate in a clinical trial for MND. And since it was launched in in um, February 2020, you know they've recruited well over 500 people, and I think over 200 of them are from Scotland. This is a huge change in a tiny number of years about providing opportunity for people who have the condition to actually participate in clinical trials, potentially benefiting from new treatments that may help. Um, but also contributing to the knowledge base that allows us to move forward and hopefully build new treatments for people in the future. So and the other thing, I just want to say, the, the other thing that I like about the MND Smart Trial is the co-curation aspect, is actually working with people who are affected by the condition to look at how best to make it easiest for them to participate, the things that matter to them, things like making the compound in a liquid form, having appointments at the house. I mean, how serendipitous was that? Um, they they decided that they wanted to, to make things as easy as possible for people. So remote remote um, meetings and, and follow-up appointments were, were, were part of the plan. And then they launched in February 2020. And in March 2020, everything went into lockdown. And suddenly everyone was talking about how to do things online and remotely. And, and so they really were thinking ahead, not planning for a pandemic, obviously, but as, as it happens, it was incredibly serendipitous because it allowed them to continue to re recruit and to continue to um, make the, the, the trial available in a period of time where actually it was very difficult for, for clinical trials to operate. So I really think they need to be commended um, for the co-curation aspect. And out of that, you know, this, this um, serendipitous um, uh, effect with the, surviving the pandemic. <laughs> And you're, I mean, bringing a point you made there, and, and it didn't really occur to me until you just said it. Of course, if if life expectancy post diagnosis is so short, the timeliness of actually identifying somebody, making sure that they can take the treatment, giving it to them, getting the results, um, is incredibly important, right? I, I guess, which is why you're so inspired by cancer, which is the same it kind of has the same difficulties. So, is the MD Smart Trial is this across all of the UK now? Are there parts where... Yes. So Savanka said it's in all four nations. Um, I think they recently opened in Northern Ireland, which is absolutely fantastic because Northern Ireland often 
gets a little bit forgotten about. And I think that it's really important that all parts of the United Kingdom are fully involved in this. But it's firmly rooted in Scotland. You know, that's its home. Um, and, and But they do a lot of work training people in, in all the recruitment centres around the UK and to make sure that everybody's operating to the same standards and contributing in the same way. I can't help but think that that even just the UK it sounds like it's thinking a little bit small for this trial, actually. I mean, if if it's so effective and so um so has such potential that actually what we ought to be doing is making sure that this is in other places in the world where they're everywhere. Well, there, there, there is a trial in Europe that's starting to move in the same direction. So this TriCals tri is also looking at um, putting in place platform trials as well. But the thing is, you've got to remember that all of this is extremely expensive and somebody has to pay for it. And at the minute, you know, um, back in you know 2018, MND Scotland took a leap of faith. Their board of trustees at that time took a leap of faith in investing in this innovative new trial. And it has actually proven to be a good decision. I, well, I feel it's been a good decision, um, so much so that we've actually decided to fund the next five years. But yeah, we're, we're a very small, that. yeah, we're a very <laughs> small charity. But we took that lead, and then other charities. Um, My name, Study Foundation, have also funded quite a lot um, of, on this current round of the trial. And I know the Ewan McDonald Centre, which is f- philanthropic funding mostly has also been funding it. So um, it's, it, it, but the money has to come from somewhere. So yes, yeah. you can talk about scaling it up, but someone has to pay for that. And um, I think that, you know, and it also has to be managed. It's, you know, obviously the bigger something is, the harder it is to manage as well. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to suggest to Savanka that he should be making this a worldwide trial unless he feels it could still maintain the quality required and well, help get the funding lifted. <laughs> I'm happy to pick up on that point. I mean, we, we have 20 sites across the UK and, and very much what we aim to do is have equity of access and, and diversity of sites as well. So urban sites, rural sites, ethnic minority sites. You know, I mentioned we've recruited people all the way from the island of Walkley and, and in rural areas like this where trials have never been done. You know, people have never participated in trials before. So we do we do have an ambition to open up more sites to increase access. And we're working with partners, as Jane mentioned, we've, we've been very f- fortunate to have the Ewan McDonald Centre as the, uh, the, where we're anchored and MND Scotland's foundational partner, many other charities as well, funding bids going into opening up new sites. Um, but we are also having parallel discussions with colleagues in other places because this is a very um, dynamic time for MND trials at the moment, globally. Um, and we're, of course, speaking to people in India, in Scandinavia, about how we might be able to work together alongside them. There are obviously regulatory constraints to uh, approvals in the UK that are governed by the MHRA, um, but there's no reason we can't learn from what others are doing elsewhere. Uh, that, that's exactly where I was going. I just I can think of things like in the in the dementia space, you've got things like the Fingers trials, and in the past from Scotland as well, you've had things like EPAD and things which have started in Scotland or in the UK and then spread internationally. Um, and you can see how this is exactly the kind of study that would lend itself to that. If so, if so, if there are any investigators out there in other parts of the world that have have access to funding and um, and uh, drive and enthusiasm to work on this, I'm sure um, both Jin and, and Savanka would like would would welcome you getting in touch. I'm, I'm going to move on from from this uh, and um, actually, I'm going to come to you, Stevie. Next, you've been very patiently sitting. <laughs> sitting there quietly so you've been involved in this trial what what's can you just uh, you can talk about kind of what it means to you in a little while but just practically tell me for um 
for anybody who's listening who's got M&D who's kind of not sure about this, what what actually has been the process of getting into this trial and what have you had to do while you've been on it? Yeah, it's actually quite simple. Um, essentially, as Vancouver says, it's in liquid form. Uh, it gets delivered to your house with a syringe. Essentially, you start off with a small dose and then it goes up eventually to 10 milliliters, which is like two small syringes. Um, and you take that every evening and it's really simple to do very easy not to forget because you put it by the side of your bed um, and it's as simple as as that but over and above that you also have appointments as Samankar also said where you can do them online so you can speak to the individual and they'll talk through what changes have happened over the, the previous few months and then also there's a visit um, to the clinic as well and when you go to the clinic they'll take some blood samples just to see if everything's okay there and then uh, give us some various tests. You know, some could be like cognitive tests as well, you know, like making sure you can still do your numbers and letters, etc. Um, but yeah, a very, very simple um, setup. Very easy. Um, and at the end of the day, you have to have hope. And, you know, that's why I think anybody who has MND, you need to look at hope. And one of the ways of getting some hope is by doing this. Okay, it's maybe unlikely it's going to save yourself, but it could well save people further down the line. That's what it's all about. And I suppose, I don't know, so if this is a question for anybody who wants to take it, really, we know from, so I've, you know, with a previous hat on, I set up something called Join Dementia Research, which encouraged people to participate in dementia trials as a register. And we know from talking to people living with dementia that there was an apprehension there that they were worried about the kind of things like some people would be happy to participate in care trials but not drug trials is that the same is that is is that different in MND is you know because of this terminality of it that actually you know do you still get people who are reluctant and say no I don't want to I don't want to take part in this I don't want to take anything that's experimental or or is there more of a willingness of people so from a research perspective I can answer that question I mean I think there's an overwhelming desire to participate in studies and actually in that, a sense of altruism as well, that people understand that, that, that their participation will help future generations of people with this condition as well. And that's the real sense that I get. And so we, we launched our registration website in February 2020, over 1,500 people have registered their interest in taking part. You know, we discussed um, that there aren't all that many people living with MND at any one time. So that's a phenomenal number. Um, and certainly there are some people, as you alluded to, who um, just are a bit uh, wary of taking part in something that might rock the boat for their current symptoms. And we do see that, but that's a minority, actually. Um, and and certainly we've had no shortage of um, demand. And that's why we're quite keen to keep things going and open up new sites as we go along. Yeah, that, so that's a good question. So what what proportion of people living with M&D in the UK actually participate in research? Do, do you have a stat on that? Maybe that's one for... Uh, well, Jane gave the very powerful figure that you know fewer than ten people in Scotland have t- ever taken part in the clinical trial before we launched, and and the figure for the whole of the UK has been less than ten percent of people with MND. So there is a massive unmet need, but it's actually a very interesting time for most neuron disease research. And, and MND Smart resits amongst a number of other complementary trials at the moment that are delivering uh, answering questions at different stages of the illness, um, and so. We have very much hope that there'll be a range of options for people living with MNT at different sites across the country and, and a step change from certainly where we were five years ago. 
So I guess this is this is actually you uh, you know as we've seen from some of the announcements this week, which we'll we'll mention later. This is the crucial time when you're wanting if if anybody is unsure to to come forward and and you know or kind of doctors are great gatekeepers sometimes, aren't they? When in in access that you know that they're the ones who facilitate access to a trial and and one of the things we did with joint dementia research was to try and kind of encourage that workaround where people could come directly they didn't have to rely upon their doctor or their 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 healthcare professional to kind of mention this so if anybody's out there if somebody's watching who's got a family member living with MND or have this themselves they can go to smart trial directly they don't have to go ask their neurologist i assume um people can register interest on our website which is mnd-smart org, but actually, in defence of the clinicians, it's the majority of the local neurologists who are also the principal investigators at the local sites, and and they've found you know they've been very very enthusiastic in taking part in MND Smart and people and Stevie might comment on this. People who have followed up in the trial also comment that they actually get enhanced contact with healthcare professionals as a result of being in the study as well. So actually, that's a good question. So, so Stevie, what would you say to anybody who's who's kind of watching, who's learning more about Smart Trial, that the public who who aren't too sure? They're, they're... Well, first of all, there's nothing to fear. I think that's it. Um, and I think what Sivankar said is true as well around the contact with other people, contact with the doctor. It does give you that bit more hope when you're speaking to them. Um, certainly. I would recommend anybody would should should give it a go. And and um, I was going to uh, a question I missed missed earlier. But Savanka, what what drugs are actually being tested in the system right now? In the yes, when we started in uh, February twenty twenty, we started with two active drugs called memantine uh, and trastone. So memantine drugs repurposed from treatment of multi moderate Alzheimer's disease. Trastone is an antidepressant. And then um, this year in April, we launched another treatment arm. Uh, amantadine, which has been repurposed from Parkinson's and also used in treatment of fatigue and multiple sclerosis. But all of these share common pathways and have data accrued, as I mentioned, from the um, stem cell studies and motor neurons to suggest that there's a, a real, um, you know, a reason to test it definitively in this platform um, at the moment. The other crucial thing about repurposed medicines in this patient group is we understand that they're safe as well. So, you know, that we don't have too much in the way of a certain side effect profile. For, for people who might be vulnerable to that. And what stage are, what stage have any of those drugs gotten to? Uh, are you at a point yet where you can say they, they're looking, uh, you're optimistic, or are, are they at the early stages still? So we're obviously blinded to all the results that are coming through. Um, what we can say is that we've now recruited 550 participants across our uh, 20 sites, and you know, thank you to every each and every participant for the contribution that's been made. We passed stage one analysis last spring, which was when 50 people had completed six months or more in each of the treatment arms, and that's for memantine and trastone. And we'll be looking at stage two analysis for those two drugs later this summer, and that's when uh, a minimum of 100 people have been followed up for 12 months or more. Um, and then there'll be another data point that we'll look at in detail. Um, and so we'll be making an announcement about what we find after that analysis, but we're obviously blinded to those results just now. That's exciting. I guess the endpoints must be quite difficult. If everybody experiences symptoms differently, and then you have your your co- obviously your placebo group, which can only ever be so big because there aren't that many people living with it, it must make measuring success quite challenging. 
that's a key question that you raise, and I think it's it's true across a range of progressive neurological disorders. What is the most sensitive and specific way of measuring change over time? So you can have clinical rating scales. They have strengths, they have weaknesses. Um, we're very interested in more sensitive and specific biomarkers. Um, obviously, in the dementia world, there are, there are many. We don't have very many sensitive or specific brain imaging biomarkers or blood-based biomarkers, and I think that's an area that we're very keen to explore. The other area is digital-based biomarkers, and again, our, our group of participants who guide us along the way who've co-produced this with have said they're very keen to use Fitbits, patient-reported outcome measures on a phone, um, using other other measures of physical functioning, speech functioning, those sorts of things. Thank you. Um, Stevie, can I just come back to you again? So you mentioned that you, you're a participant in the trial. Have you had any involvement in the in the kind of patient and public involvement side of things? Yeah, I've done a wee bit on, on that that front as well. Um, I actually visited the, the clinic uh, a couple of weeks ago and um, was given a little tour to see some of the work that was going on. And it was quite mind-blowing to see, um, for example, the, the work they're doing with uh, zebrafish. Uh, I got to see some of the stem cell um, work that was being done there as well. Um, and you know, it was, the other fascinating thing for me was the robotic um, drug checker, um, which basically sp speeds up the testing of drugs. Um, you can do like 360 tests at one time. So that was amazing to see. Um, and as far as projecting um, M&D and the, the charities itself, um, I've got a tie up with, with Harlem Melodian Football Club. So I've done quite a lot of um, PR work for them. And only yesterday they announced that they're going to sponsor MD Scotland under shirts again for this season. So, yeah, good to see. That is great news. It it really is. I, I'm guessing. Um, I'm guessing, uh, Jane and Samantha, that that having designed a trial that clearly has um, a very deep understanding of of what it's like to live with MD and and then to have kind of created a trial that lends itself so specifically to this community that PPI has been an important aspect of designing this in the outset. Absolutely. All the way from the very beginning, and we have an ongoing, very active PPI group that meet regularly. There are several moving components to the trial, as you can imagine, with different treatment arms coming in, talked about different outcome measures that might come in, and we've taken advice and guidance always, and people living with MND have been at the centre of all of this. And increasingly, um, PPI involvement is relevant for our funding applications. And I'm sure Jane will say that people with MND have reviewed our funding application as well. So uh, I think at every level, really, it's, it's a study that's been designed and delivered in co-production. And, and it is an expectation, isn't it? All funders now expect that they'll, you know, that there will have been good PPI input into design, which brings us really nicely to this exciting news that there's a further. 2.5 million for the smart trial this week and 2 million of that is very generously coming from M&D Scotland. Um what Jane tell us um tell us how how are you going to how's this money going to kind of add to the study what's it going to help with? Well the most important aspect of the investment and I should say that, that 2 million is coming from M&D Scotland and we're working in partnership with the M&D Association who are our sister charity down in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and they're putting in half a million. So I should say that right at the start. But really the most important aspect is is to 
to continue what's been started. You know, there's been this investment. Originally, we put in one and a half million for the first five years. And as I said, there were other contributors, which I mentioned earlier. And, you know, all of these partners working together have invested to allow the establishment of this platform trial and its expansion across the UK. And we need to continue that. It needs to continue. It's really important that it becomes part of the clinical trial infrastructure in the UK. So that's the first thing is to ensure its longevity. A platform trial is not, you know, it, it's not for Christ- just for Christmas. It's a much longer term investment than that. Um, the whole point is to set it up and then run it by, in- you know, introduce different drug arms. You can't do that if you only invest in it for a short period of time. So really the main uh, motivation for us is to ensure some longevity. So at the end of this five years of funding, which kicks in in the autumn, we will have been funding this for a decade, which is much more realistic in terms of you know testing multiple drugs. And so that's the first thing. But the second thing is I think it allow it it builds on what's there and, uh, and allows the trial team to expand into new areas. And by that I'm meaning that hopefully they can then leverage funding to do things like have digital device development or to be able to open up recruitment centres in, in areas where normally people aren't able to engage and particularly in perhaps ethnically diverse areas. And these are things that perhaps our funding can't actually pay for itself because we're paying for the, the infrastructure that sits there to enable everything. Um, but hopefully by investing and, and showing the fact that, you know, demonstrating confidence in this model going forward, it will allow other investors to come forward and, and to pay for those extra expansion elements. Savanka, is that about right? Is have I have I got your plans about right there? No, I think that's absolutely right. And we mentioned foresight before from MND Scotland and others to fund this, but it's not a traditional model of a clinical trial that has a definite end date. And so there, there's a risk involved, isn't there, Jane, with how we we do this over time? And I, I think exactly when we're talking about infrastructure, we're really talking about people, you know, talented people who they might be from the drug discovery team, they might be from our trial office, they might be statisticians, they might be people who are working in pharmacy, they might be working on drug development and, and manufacturing, but to retain good people and to keep the infrastructure going longer term requires that security that this funding has allowed now. And that then now underpins, as Jane says, future funding calls and that we can now seek for diversification in, in expansion of sites, new drug arms to come in. I mean, this extra five years of funding has meant that we were able to launch a new drug treatment this year because that will carry on an hour the next few years. So that that's what this is allowed as well. So um, definitely, Jane, that's 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 exactly right. The short-term nature of research funding is always comes up in in uh, in dementia research as well as being a, a barrier not only to the the careers and the individuals that work in the field because we know we have this kind of this is a specialist interest area for us, but we have this kind of leaky pipeline of mid-career researchers that go off and do other things and. Funding studies on the longer term actually makes a big difference to doing that. I mean, I'm interested actually. You mentioned because this is going on in England as well, and and part of our service is funded by the NIHR. Um, how does how does the NIHR have this sits on the NIHR portfolio? I assume and is then delivered in NHS sites through the NIHR. Jane, do you want to take that one? That... No, I don't think it is. Is it not? <laughs> In terms of funding, I don't believe the this was a HR puts any funding into it. This was a podcast. I would cut that bit out. I mean, I can't, I can't see why this shouldn't sit on the NIHR portfolio and then gain. Well, Savanka, I don't know if it does. I mean, they certainly don't fund it, so um, I'm not sure what the criteria for getting one to their portfolio is. But I think it has to be funded through open competition. 
Oh, um, well, yes. So in which case, I guess it is. But I'm um, sorry, I, I guess I just didn't quite understand the if, question. If, if but, it's a study that's funded through open competition, then the NHS, the NIHR cover the delivery, the practical delivery costs of hiring nurses and, and things like that. And it sits on the NHS. If not, we'll follow so up on this. I, I think the answer to that probably is yes. Then, it's and Savanka so knows more about that. It sits, it sits on the portfolio, but you're right that NHR don't directly fund this study. No, yeah. no, it, it's it's funded elsewhere, but then the NHR infrastructure supports delivery of the. Study. So actually, can I just pick up on that? Who does fund it? You know, because so who funds it? It's individual people. Yeah, it's people who go out and run marathons and bake scones for cream teas and tray bakes and you know, trek to the Himalayas and, and it, it's all incredibly um, hard earned, you know, in small small amounts of money that come together to be able to allow us to invest, you know, what, we, what for us, £2 million is a huge amount of money. Um, so it, it all comes from individuals who are uh, put themselves out um, to raise money for um, the benefit of people with motor neuron disease, and many of them will have a personal connection, but a lot of them won't. And we are incredibly grateful to the efforts of so many people around the country um, that allow us to in- invest. And so that's not just the charities, but also, you know, the Ewan McDonald Centre is also funded from philanthropic donations as well. So all of this has come from individuals. And you can't see this, but for anybody watching at home, if you'd like to make a donation, run a marathon, or I, I know... Uh, Jenny Gabriel wing walked on an aeroplane for you this she week. She absolutely did she... do that last week. Yes. <laughs> um, there's a. You can see down here, down there. There's a, a link which includes um, your uh, to the uh, MND Scotland website where you can make a donation, sign up to do something for them, and um, raise much needed funds, which will help contribute hopefully even more money to the MND Smart Trial and their other areas. Because that must be difficult decisions to make. Because I guess as a charity, you're also being called upon to support families while they're going through this, you know, to with practical things like, uh, I don't know, speech and language therapy, dietitians, um, people to help with those swallowing difficulties. How It must be incredibly yes, difficult exactly, to work yeah. how so to spend we, your money. We do have a sort of two-armed portfolio. Well, three, actually, because we do policy and campaigning as well on behalf of people. Um, but, you know, we do, we do support people by making sure that they can max, we help them maximise their income by ensuring that they, they receive the benefits that they, that they should be due. It's navigating these systems to get things that are statutory rights is incredibly complicated and difficult. So we have a team of people that actually work with uh, people with MND to make sure that they are getting as much as they're they can and they're entitled to and we also have a team of people that work um with the families to ensure that they can access housing adaptations because stevie you know beautifully at the beginning of this pod, uh, um this live stream articulated how he's adapting his home to to suit his needs and that actually is incredibly challenging because progression disease progression is so variable and the society that we have is not set up to cope with that, the councils are very prescribed in how they they, they um, decide who can have different housing adaptations. And so then they're not nimble enough or able to adapt to the speed of MND. So we have a group, we have a team of people here that help navigate these systems and champion people's needs. So yes, um, you know, the funding that we receive from all those individual fundraisers goes towards directly supporting people. And we also have a series of small grants that people can apply for, but also to invest in research. So it is it is that balance between, you know, investing in 
hopefully future improved treatments and maybe a cure one day, and also today investing in helping support people. Well, keep an eye on the uh, MND Scotland website because I know that they do also fund early career researchers and those calls, I think, are due to open later in the year. So do... uh, we'll be a PhD studentship funding call opening on the 1st of August, the next Ooh. call. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, we're really we're really getting close to running out of time and I'm conscious of keeping you. I just want to remind, well, I don't remind you because I haven't told you yet. If anybody's watching at home and would like to ask a question, please post it. If you're on YouTube, you can post that in the comments. And if you're posting on Twitter, you can uh, post that below. I'm going to quickly check Twitter because they don't appear on the platform. Uh, I can't see any questions. Can't see any questions there. But um, it's probably a good thing because I've asked all the questions and kept <laughs> prattling on like I like I so often do in these things. Well, I, what we can say, Jane, is is that your lobbying and policy work is clearly being uh, very effective because. Um, whilst this might be as much as we've got time for today, there you've had a it's been a great week from M and D, hasn't it? We've heard about the you wrote a blog for us at the start of the week, which it's, is available yeah. on our website and also as well in your podcast app, um, which talks to the new UK M and D Research Institute. Um, we don't have time to talk about that, but go read the blog uh, or listen to the podcast. We'll put a link in the show notes for you to find that. We've also heard about extra funding for other trials this this week. Um, is, are there any of those that are worth highlighting particularly? We did put some links again. On yeah, the so there, there's some um, funding was announced for um, what's called the experts trial. So so this is a sort of stage before the uh, MND smart trial. So it's a new approach that they're, they're going to be looking at neurofilament light chain biomarkers and trying to do very, very quick um, testing of potential, um, again, in, in that instance, repurposed treatments to look and see whether or not they can reduce neurofilament levels, which might be indicative of uh, a treatment that perhaps would, should be prioritized for trying in, in a full trial like MND Smart. And what's great about MND Smart is phase three trial. So, you know, it is definitive. The results that come out of that can actually be used to go to the regulators to, to um, campaign for treatments to be made available. But uh, the experts trial is going to be important because it's going to be looking at how to prioritise some of the drugs that we may be needing to look at by trying this new biomarker we think might be um, a, a way of looking at disease progression. It's an exciting time. And there was an announcement from the NIHR as well as uh, further investment uh, uh, in, in uh, M&D research. And um, UKRI and NIHR have both got themed calls not theme calls, highlight notices. Yeah, highlight um, notices. At, at the moment, that all their funding calls. Um, Stevie, are you okay there? I'm, I'm, do you know what? I'm going to read. I'm going to thank everybody, and I'm going to give you the very last word, if if, if you're still okay there. So I'd like to yeah. thank my brilliant guests, uh, Stevie Morris, uh, Dr. Jane uh, Haley, and Professor Savanka Powell, and uh, and of course M and D Scotland, and particularly as well Jenny Gabriel, who helped bring all this together, uh, working with M and D Scotland. We've put a ton of Posts, resources, blogs, and interviews and news on our website about M and D this week. So, and there there are jobs as well, and funding calls and other events. So, do go have a look at those if you're interested. Uh, Stevie, you have the last word. Why don't you tell us how how important how important is research in M and D? It's absolutely vital. It's simple as that. Unless we get some research done, we're not going to get that cure, and we really are looking for that eureka moment. Wouldn't it be great? It certainly would. Thank you very much, everybody, for watching at home and have a great rest of the afternoon. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. 
brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, bringing you research, news, career tips and support.